This ad-free podcast is part of your Slate Plus membership. Lucky you. To Big Mood, Little Mood. I'm your host, Daniel Avery, and with me in the studio this week is Ash Sky Keen, who tutors mathematics from home with their two-year-old child. They love community organizing and helping neurodivergent students navigate math. Ash, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me here, Daniel. Uh, thank you for briefly teaching me what an algorithm is. How involved would you say, on like a scale of one to ten, uh, is your two-year-old in in tutoring people in math? Is it like? Oh. You use the kid to illustrate principles of math, or is it just like they're there? It really varies from day to day. Sometimes I will have her watching a Netflix show while I'm like hiding in the corner trying to focus on my work, but sometimes she'll be right in my lap and participating in the conversation. And uh, honestly, we've been doing that together since she was six weeks old and I came back from parental leave. She would just be in my arms while I would be working on the whiteboard on Zoom in fall 2020, that was when she was born. So she's been with me the whole time. Beautiful. I'm excited because basically our first question is a math problem. So I found, I, come on, this is the closest I'm going to get to a math question. You can't, you can't look <laughs> questioning at that. You can't, you can't I, be that hard I on me. I guess you could say it's a math problem. Sure. It's got numbers in it. Yes. It does have numbers. I saw those. <laughs> People don't usually ask me numbers-based questions. This is absolutely <laughs> the closest we're going to get. I appreciate that you saved that one for me. <laughs> yeah. Listen, it has numbers. So we're not getting off to a great start because you are undermining me at every opportunity. But I have faith that we can turn the ship <laughs> I around. I'm sorry, Danny. <laughs> no, not at all. Not at all. Um, it's good, though, to go into this question with like suspicion and resentment because we're talking about um, somebody who wants advanced inheritances, which is, it's great. I don't want to, I don't want to like get too much into it. I just want to read it because it's beautiful. The subject is advanced inheritance. Is it ethical to ask parents to split inheritance differently based on unequal monetary gifts to their adult children while the parents are alive? My parents are upper middle class and have serious health issues, although neither is on death's door. When they die, I expect their estate to be roughly a million dollars. They've always said that the money would be split equally between the two of their children. My sibling has struggled with depression and has had trouble keeping a job after college. They've moved back in with our parents and don't have much money of their own. My parents paid off their college loans, which they had co-signed for both of us. My parents did give us both some money for college and arranged things so that we both had to take out roughly the same amount of loans, about $60,000 each. Thankfully, my sibling is doing much better now and has been on a solid career path for the last few years. My problem is I feel resentful that my parents paid for my sibling's entire college education, whereas I've had to pay back my loans on my own. I'm in my mid-30s and I'm still paying. Especially in my early 20s, those monthly repayments ate up most of my paycheck and they were a huge burden. My parents boast about how they've always treated us equally, but this seems to be a significant blind spot. Can I ask for an additional $60,000 in their will without being an asshole? My sibling is fairly easygoing and I doubt would begrudge me the money, but I haven't brought it up yet. Part of me feels like it's not worth the risk of alienating my family to bring it up since we're talking about roughly 10% of the inheritance. But another part of me says $60,000 is a lot of money. It would be life-changing right now. And I've been somewhat resentful about this for a decade. 
Should I process this resentment in therapy without talking to my family about it? If I should talk to my family about it, how do I go about it? I don't want my sibling to be surprised by this if my parents do agree, so I feel like I should keep them in the loop if I do talk to my parents. If it matters, I have received zero financial assistance from my parents as an adult beyond the equal college funds, and I'm close with my sibling, but not really with my parents. My parents emotionally abused both of us as children, name-calling, yelling, not being accepting of mental health struggles or both of us being LGBT, and have only been somewhat repentant later on with a lot of denial. Woof. Yeah, lots lots going on here, as they say. Lot to unpack there. I do, I do love that the letter essentially opens with like the beginning of the prodigal son story, um, which is like never a great place to begin in like parent-child relations, which is just like, give me my inheritance now. You're not dead yet, but let's financially act as if you were. Yeah. So from the math perspective, I I see that they say when they die, I expect their estate to be roughly a million dollars. And I just don't think that that's the kind of thing that you can have expectations about. Your parents have serious health issues, so they may require really expensive health care or skilled nursing care toward the end of their life. And maybe you've already factored that in, but you can't really predict how much of their estate their end-of-life care is going to cost. So you can't predict what there is going to be left to split, if anything. I think that was a good place to start too, if only because that felt like, yeah, a very like casual assumption. And I, I want to steer this letter writer away from potentially picking up new resentments. And I think a great way to pick up a new resentment would be to assume, okay, when my parents die, it's going to be roughly half a million each for me and my sibling. Um, when, yeah, as you rightly say, end-of-life medical care can often be wildly expensive, not to mention like funeral costs and like the estate tax. And so I'm just, it seems to me like maybe it'll be roughly a million and maybe it'll be way, 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 way less. Right. And you don't want to start resenting your parents for choosing a more expensive retirement home to live out their days in because that's going to cut into your inheritance, right? Yeah. And and, and I think already kind of having this mindset of like that amount of money is as good as mine, which can just, again, like it can lead you down a road where you start to think of like now anything less than a half a million when they die is basically me losing you know, so right. that like anything that comes up, if like, like they decide, you know what, we want to go on a trip around the world, then you're like, well, that's taking away from my future money. And again, just, you know, I want to caution the letter writer against like, basically their death will equal half a million dollars to me, partly because I think that will encourage you to start thinking of them as like, not that you'll wake up tomorrow and be like, why aren't they dead yet? But that you will, I think, start begrudging them any potential like enjoyment of that money while they are alive because it'll just be like the money's basically mine anyways they should they should probably just die yeah absolutely i know this literator does not have a good relationship with their parents but thinking that way is definitely not a good way to have a relationship with yourself so yeah it's i'm i'm even like without even worrying about like what potential damage might this do to you kind of psychically so much as just real like logistically i don't think that that's a a reliable expectation and i want you to have realistic expectations so that you don't create unnecessary disappointment for yourself yeah absolutely this is not something that you should be doing your financial planning based around yeah so the question i think of whether or not you want to make a request of your parents about your student loans is a separate question. And I think you you probably can consider having that conversation with them. 
but separate that out from whatever expectations you think you'll get when they die. Like just who knows how much money there will be? Who knows how much of that estate is tied up in like, I don't know, real estate or like stocks that might change value or any any other number of things that might fluctuate. So so the specifics of the college loan stuff, I think you can talk to them about, but the I'm getting half a million as soon as they're dead. I just don't think that's going to do you much good. Like if it happens, great. Let it be a delightful surprise. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Uh, One thing that I really liked about this letter is when the letter writer wrote, should I process this resentment in therapy without talking to my family about it? Um, And I hope they already know the answer. That's absolutely yes. Um, Maybe not without talking to your family about it, but before talking to your family about it. Yes. Um, Yeah. If you're not in therapy already, Larry Ryder, please start. If you are, then why haven't you talked to your therapist about it yet before writing this letter? Yes. Make that a priority because it seems like it's occupying a lot of space in your mind. And I think it would be good to work through that with a professional before you bring it to your family, for sure. Right. And I I was just recording with another guest earlier and we were talking about the kind of question of like fairness and how that can sometimes be useful in relationships and how sometimes it can turn into real like unhelpful scorekeeping. And my, my guest had just been talking about the kind of difference between like fair treatment versus like totally equal treatment. And I think it's worth maybe reframe. Like again, I, I actually think like it's potentially okay for you to like propose to your parents that they consider helping you out with some of your student loans as they did for your sibling. I don't think that would be like a really weird or uh, inappropriate thing to ask. Although I think if you're going to ask, you should be prepared for the possibility of no. And if you hear no, take it with good grace. But this question that you feel is so like, well, my parents say they treat us equally, but my sibling got all this money that I didn't. And like, yes, that is factually true. But it's also true that like you did, it sounds like fairly well after college and got to find a job and become independent while your sibling really floundered and really struggled and um, had to move in with their parents. And it, my guess is that your sibling doesn't also have like a totally uncomplicatedly amazing relationship with your parents if they also grew up being like yelled at and called names. So I imagine in a lot of ways that was pretty hard on them. And again, that's not to say that like the money then doesn't count. It just is like, I I imagine your parents think of it more along the lines of, it's really nice that we didn't have to do that with our other kid because our other kid was able to like launch into independent adulthood without any further assistance. So like from your perspective, it's just like, oh, my sibling got 60000 that I didn't and that sucks. But from another perspective, like your sibling had to live with your parents for years and years and was unemployed. And and like, I think probably really, really, I think there are plenty of people who would have been like anything to save $60,000. And I think there are plenty of people who would have been like, I will happily go another $60,000 into debt to avoid having to live with my parents in that situation. So again, that's not to say that like, you should just feel like free and easy about it. Just like there's $60,000 and there's $60,000. Right. I think you're really touching on the issue of equality versus equity because, you know, one of you needed that support to survive and potentially, um, you know, avoid becoming unhoused. And it does sound like the letter writer was really significantly burdened by their student loans, especially in their 20s, as they mentioned. but they did survive and they don't present us with with any evidence or stories about 
uh, really undo suffering that the that lack of help caused. And maybe if they had been in a worse situation, their parents would have helped them out more with it. Um, right. You know, I mean, I'm definitely way over on the uh, from each according to their ability to each according to their need uh, side of things. Um, not so much about everyone being treated exactly the same because that's not what we need. You know, everyone has different support needs. So I can see how from some perspective with some details that we don't really have about this situation, perhaps it was equitable the way the parents treated this kids or, you know, depending on some other details that we don't have, uh, perhaps it was not. I really think the only people who can determine that is the family in the situation. Right. And I think the other thought that has just now occurred to me is, you know, the letter writer says that the parents co-signed both of their loans. And so I think another way of looking at this situation that the letter writer maybe hasn't thus far is your sibling, it sounds like, was in a position where they were probably in danger of defaulting on those loans. And given that your parents co-signed them, they had to pay that money or they would have been on the hook for defaulted student loans. So it's right. less like this kid got 60000 and the other kid didn't. And more like we made an arrangement with both kids and it worked out with the first and it didn't with the second. And if we didn't fix it, we were going to be further and further in debt ourselves. So it's it's not like they bought your sibling like $60,000 worth of stuff that your sibling got to keep and enjoy. And again, I'm not saying this to make you feel like, oh, I was so wrong to ever kind of like wish I'd gotten that sort of financial help too. I just think it might be helpful. It's not like you're sibling has like a $60,000 down payment on a condo they get to live in by themselves. It's not like they got a $60,000 car that they got to like depreciate all by themselves. Um, This was like emergency money that went towards keeping your parents from being on the hook for defaulted loans. I was thinking about that contractual obligation as well, that perhaps the parents didn't even really want to make that decision. But like you said, they co-signed both of them. That was totally equal. And you know, I mean, this is bad advice, letter writer, don't take this. But if you want to go support Shirth, you could stop paying your student loans and default them. And then your parents would have to pay them off because they co-signed them. So, you know, that is an option to you, but I don't recommend it. Yeah. So I think all of that is just to say, letter writer, um, it sounds like your parents are like pretty well off. And if you wanted to just say, hey, I would love it if you guys would make a contribution towards my student loans. I realize you're really free to say no, and I appreciate the help you gave me towards my college education already, but it, it would mean a lot to me. It would make a big difference in my life if you could. I, I hope you'll consider it. You know, I think that's a reasonable request to make if you frame it in that way. It, it obviously puts the ball entirely in their court, and I wouldn't encourage you to try to lean on them further by saying like, remember you did it when you had to for my sibling who was so depressed they couldn't find work. Like that, I think, would be an unfair and inappropriate amount of emotional pressure to put on them. But I think you could make that request. It sounds like your parents were not great uh, about emotional development growing up, but they're a little bit better about uh, logistical support in adulthood. So that's at least good, right? Like it'd be worse if they were, you know, shitty when you were kids and then also often used money to try to manipulate you as adults. So I'm glad that they at least are maybe better with cash a little bit than they were with developing psyches. Although obviously, you know, I wish it had been the other way around. Um, (laughs) But yeah, you could, I think, make that request, but just be ready to hear no. And if you do hear no, 
uh, figure out how to process it externally rather than like, well, my sibling who was so depressed they couldn't work for years and had to live in your basement and nearly dragged you into debt got $60,000. Why do they get to have all the fun? Like that just is so classic sibling stuff where it's just like, I, I remember that acute awareness of everything my brother and sister had and that just like real little kid desire to be like, well, if they get it, I should get it. It's it's human. It's understandable. It's kind of close to universal. But I think generally it's the kind of thing that you should try to shed as much as you possibly can with every passing year. And I say that as somebody who fucking hates both of my siblings uh, and wouldn't piss on them if they were on fire. So, you know, if I'm saying it, it's really true. Yeah, I really appreciate that perspective. I can't lend much to that because I'm an only child twice over before and after I was adopted. But I think you're really getting at something important. And another thing that I wanted to add to that, I think we've both been implying it, but I want to make it explicit for the letter writer. If you are going to ask your parents to help you out with your student loans, uh, this should be something you ask them to do while they're still alive. Don't make it about the will. Right. Um, You know, they helped your sibling in life. Maybe they can help you in life. Maybe they will, maybe they won't. But that way, whether your sibling is aware of that gift or not, if they do it, how do I say this? Like, when your parents die, it's just going to be you and your sibling left. And you said you have a good relationship with your sibling. If you want to keep that, I think it would be best for everything to be split down the middle at that time of your parents' death, like your parents always planned on. That's definitely the best way to keep things smooth with your sibling. So if you are going to ask for this money, it should be something that happens now or in the very near future and not in the will. Yes. I'm very glad that you brought that up because that is also crucial. There's no reason to bring inheritance into a conversation about student loans. The only thing it would do is kind of make your parents think like, oh, is our kid that excited for us to die? And even if your parents have said to you, like, we plan on leaving you our money when we're gone. I think it's always just like a good idea to assume anything could happen. They might change their minds. As long as they're alive, it is their money. And if they decide Mm -hmm. to change their mind and leave it to someone else, not only is that like within their prerogative, that's a good thing. People should be able to decide where they want to leave their money. You shouldn't count on getting cash from your parents upon their death as like, something that you plan. You know what I mean? Like don't plan for that money and like, well, I won't be able to afford like this house or this lifestyle until my parents die. But once that absolutely like rock solid guaranteed money comes my way, like that's, that's how Agatha Christie stories start. Um, If your parents (laughs) choose to leave you anything after they die, great. Enjoy it. Make the most of it. If they don't, just don't count on it. You don't need to make your life more difficult in that way. So Take take any promises of inherited money with a grain of salt, I guess, is what I'm encouraging you. Um, yeah. Absolutely. Don't, don't like, if they're going to give you the money, they're going to give you the money. I don't think they're going to be more persuaded if you're like, well, when you died, you were going to give me half of your estate. So why not just start? It, it sounds like you're asking for an advance on your allowance, I guess, is why I also <laughs> it does, think it's not it going to be a good strategy. It doesn't sound like you're coming to them with like a kind of, you know, this is like a reasonable request. I realize you're free to say no, but like it would be really useful to me. And I know if you could, that'd be great. But then if you add the inheritance stuff, it just makes it sound like, give me my November birthday now and I'll never ask for Christmas presents again. You know, like it it, it just doesn't add anything to your argument and it feels like something that a child would say. Not to say letter writer, you don't sound childish in this letter. You sound like 
fairly thoughtful. I understand why this has been bothering you. I just think it'll help you to see things from your sibling's perspective, who I imagine in a lot of ways, despite being easygoing, maybe sometimes feels like jealous that you were able to just like make a go of having a career and living independently right after college and never had to rely on your difficult parents. Um, Right. That's a really good point. You know, again, doesn't mean you have to feel guilty about it. Just like nobody gets all the same things in life. I think that's why it's so important to shed this fantasy of equity. Like even if you and your sibling were twins and chose to like do everything the same every day to the best of your ability, you still wouldn't have the exact same lives and get the exact same things from your parents and the world around you. There's always going to be a little change. And while it's understandable if there's like obvious marked favoritism in a way that really gets in the way of having a relationship. But this doesn't, this feels like your parents and your sibling went through a crisis that they like had to throw some money at rather than like, oh, there's a longstanding pattern of your sibling gets cash and prizes and you get like put out to pasture. Yeah, absolutely. So Danny, I have a question for you as somebody with siblings, because I don't have experience with that type of relationship. I just want to stress though, my relationship with my siblings is a little weird. So it's not well, like I'm the normal one. <laughs> but it exists. Um, so when I first read this letter, and I read the letter writer say, I have a good relationship with my sibling and a like rockier relationship with my parents. My first reaction was like, oh, if you are going to make this request, maybe it would be good to consider having the conversation first with your sibling before your parents. But the more I think about it, the less good that idea sounds. So I don't know. What what do you think, Danny? You know, I feel kind of neutral about this one. It seemed to me actually like the letter writer had a pretty good sense of like, I'm not trying to make money do the work of feelings. Like I'm not asking for cash to make up for my bad childhood, or I'm not like hoping to get money to atone for the way that they treated me when I was younger, Um, which was something I actually kind of admire about this letter writer. It felt like they were kind of aware of like, that's a separate thing. Uh, They're not doing great on that front, but they're okay in talking about money. I I would just say those conversations need to be real, real separate. So if and when you want to have a conversation with your parents about, you know, sometimes you guys, you know, are a little bit apologetic about the way that you talked to us when we were kids, but there's a lot of denial and I would like to have a different kind of conversation. That needs to be a few months out from any conversation about money for, I think, pretty obvious reasons. Um, And it's like, it feels like the letter writer is kind of like, I'm aware that my parents were not great when I was growing up. They're kind of okay now. We're not going to be besties. And and that's fine. Like if I didn't get a real strong sense from this, that they're like, I would love to have a real honest conversation and I want to make steps towards it. It feels like the money is more important to them right now, which totally makes sense. Um, It would make a big difference. And um, yeah, if you ever decide letter writer, you want to think more about the other emotional aspect write another letter and we'll talk about that in greater detail. But um, for right now, I think you can certainly- go to therapy. (laughs) Yeah, definitely go to therapy. That's You don't have to go to therapy in order to make the request, but it sounds like you kind of maybe want to and think you'll benefit from it. And I think that's true. If you do make the request of your parents, you totally can. I say go for it. Just don't bring up inheritance stuff and be ready to hear no. And if you do hear no and you just like get so mad, you don't know what to do, definitely go to therapy. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I don't know, maybe like check in with your sibling. Uh, You say they're like pretty easygoing. And so my guess is you maybe sometimes assume that they're doing fine. But I don't know, just like maybe ask like, how's it feel living with mom and dad all the time? Like, how you doing? I don't know. Maybe, maybe just express a little bit more curiosity in terms of how they're doing. 
Um, sometimes easygoing people have have more stuff going on than than you might assume. But you don't. I, I don't want to imply that like the letter writer like doesn't care about their sibling. I just think like, yeah, throw throw them a question or two. This next one I love because it's like resulted in more serious estrangement than our first letter, but over something, this feels like the kind of like issue that would come up on like a a Real Housewives show (laughs) where like there'd be weeks of fighting about like one, one comment made on like a drunken night out. Um, It's so silly. It's so silly. I would love to explore the silliness. I actually have totally the opposite perspective. And I know that's me coming in with my own trauma about this, but Mm -hmm. I feel like we've been given such a tiny glimpse into this dynamic and there's probably a lot more under the surface that we are not going to get details about. Good. I like this. Sometimes my guests and I agree too much. And so it's always really nice when there's like slightly different perspectives. So I'm going into this with the bias that I think that the letter writer is being a silly goose and a silly goose, uh, in fact, to such an extent that they are impeding their ability to be close to other people. But I like that you're thinking maybe there's more going on here. Maybe there are hidden depths we have yet to uncover. Maybe nobody's being a silly goose at all. So... Yeah, yeah. I'm definitely coming in with my own biases about it. But my bias is that I think we don't have all the information. And maybe if we did, it would seem a lot less silly. So I'll never admit that. We'll I out. always assume I go into every question with all the information. And I know everything <laughs> there is to know. Um, will you please <laughs> read this letter before I myself become a silly goose? Of course. Okay. Uh, subject, mean-spirited. Recently, I had a fight with a close friend. I expressed some mild frustration over being led in the wrong direction multiple times on foot at night by my friend's drunk roommate. My friend overheard me say the words, are you fucking kidding me? To myself and told me to calm down that I was being mean-spirited. I disagreed and I was a bit offended by the implication and we ended the night tense and didn't speak to each other at all for a week after, which is unusual for us. I felt I deserved an apology. I wasn't being malicious. I ended up breaking the silence in a way that made my frustration known. We met up, and after speaking for a while, she expressed she didn't reach out because she didn't know what to say, but also ended up apologizing at her own volition. I was hoping that would be that, but I had lingering upsetness that she didn't feel the need to apologize sooner or even reach out at first when I felt an apology was warranted. I've been very distant with her lately and don't feel very inclined to accept any of the plans she tries to make. And don't really regret missing that potential time with her. She has reached out expressing sadness that we aren't as close anymore. Is this too small to end a friendship over? Am I being too resentful? Was her reaction not worthy enough to expect an apology from? You know what I really wish we had? I wish we had like a voice note of just like, how did you say, are you fucking kidding me? Because I can imagine a kind of like lightly exasperated, slightly tipsy, like, are you kidding me? I can't believe we're lost again. Or yeah. I can hear, are you fucking kidding me? You piece of shit. After being yes. like told, oh, we're just kidding. It's like a left instead of a right. Um, so I really, that I really, really wish we could just hear, what was the tone with which you said, are you fucking kidding me? 
Yeah, though that's the first piece of missing information I think we really don't have. I was definitely reading it more the second way, but that's because of my personal lives. So we really don't know. Um, it, it is also just like another like piece of evidence in the case for no one in the history of time has ever been told to calm down and actually calm down. Everyone who has ever heard calm down gets 10 times angrier. It's, yeah, it's 100%. just no one hears you got to calm down. It's like, oh, thank you. I, I will incorporate <laughs> that feedback and I will become more calm. Right. Yeah. So my first question for the letter writer, which I know we're not going to get a response, but like the, this letter writer keeps saying that they feel they deserved an apology from their friend. But like, what did they expect an apology for? Was it for being told to calm down? Was it for being called mean-spirited? Something else? Like, could you could you get a read on what they felt like they needed an apology for? I mean, this is where I think the silly goose stuff comes into play. Like, I felt like they were frustrated. Somebody else noticed their frustration and thought that it was unwarranted, and they didn't like that. And so the letter writer went, like, totally silent, didn't talk to them for a week, you know, and just like, I felt like I deserved an apology. I wasn't being malicious. It's just like, okay, pal, you're going to, you know, you're going to lose a lot of fly getting contests with that flavor of vinegar, um, which is a very folksy way of of referring to <laughs> catching more flies. Um, yeah, I, I think the initial whatever, like, it sounds like some drinking was going on. You were a little bit lost. Maybe you sounded really exasperated. Maybe your friend uh, kind of misunderstood. Regardless, this like barely reaches a one or two on the scale of like drunk misunderstandings if we're like rating it at a scale of one to 10. So that your friend said, hey, you know, don't be mean, Uh, calm down. And you were like, I'm going to give you the silent treatment until I get an apology. How dare you accuse me of malice? That's just like a really, if, if, if that's your reaction to even like slightly rude exasperation from a friend, I think you're going to be creating a lot of unnecessary conflict in your life. I think letter writer, you you were being a silly goose. Um, And so I ended up breaking the silence in a way that made my frustration known. Again, like just when I like put this all together, that just feels very like highfalutin, just like, you know, oh, oh, did her Royal Highness descend from the throne to make her frustration known to the people? Like, Jesus, (laughs) Jesus, <laughs> just like talk like a person. I, I think if you catch yourself not talking to your close friend for a week, which you've never done before, because like five nights ago they said you were being a little bit bitchy, um, you have not beaten the little bit bitchy allegations. Um, you have been found yes. and yes. convicted of Thank being you. a little bitchy by a jury of your peers. Like you need to be able to let stuff go. And this is not so important or big uh, or like terminally about your character that it's worth the fight you've both been through, especially since your friend has now apologized and also said, I'm sad we're not talking and you're still mad. You still don't really regret missing time with her because she didn't apologize as fast as you wanted to. I'm actually going to go ahead and upgrade. I no longer think this letter writer's being a silly goose. I think this letter writer's being an asshole. Thank you. I agree. And honestly... I was going to save this for later, but I'll say it now. So you felt like you deserved an apology because your friend called you mean-spirited and told you to calm down. But have you apologized to your friend or their drunk roommate for saying, are you fucking kidding me? Or even just like letting it go. Yeah. Like, I feel like 
if your friend has something to apologize for, then you certainly also do. You know, either it's a no-fault situation or or not. But I just, I don't see your friend being the only person who needs to apologize here, if anyone does. I So I had thought when we were going into this, when you said that you thought there might be more going on than we were aware of, I thought you meant in a way that like mitigated the letter writer's behavior. And I was like, no, wow, that's very generous of you. And I see now what no, you mean is like, absolutely not. I think this letter writer probably has like a more serious pattern of overreacting or being really harsh and judgmental with their friends. That's probably going to like end up hurting them in the long run. Um, yes, perhaps that, but also I guess the pattern that I was thinking might be present that we don't have any information about is how often do they get frustrated and say, are you fucking kidding me? Right. When somebody gets a little bit lost, you know, if this was the first time, then maybe reasonable people would let it slide. But if it happens every time some drunk people get a little bit lost and they get exasperated and say something that doesn't sound so nice like that, you know, eventually your friends are going to speak up and say, hey, like, it doesn't feel good when you talk to us like that. And letter writer, if you did not have any malicious intentions and you were not being mean-spirited, as you say, then the correct reaction to hearing that you hurt someone with your words would be, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. I didn't mean to come off that way, but I realize how you know, saying it that way could have been hurtful. I'll do better in the future, you know? But it sounds like that's not what you did at all. And you actually didn't apologize, most likely. And you demanded an apology of your own. So that is just not adding any evidence to the, like, you're not mean-spirited column for me, you know? Um, I mean, I wasn't there. I don't want to say how mean you are, but... (sighs) Yeah, I mean, again, like, I I think we'll get a little lost in the weeds if we try to like adjudicate exactly how frustrating getting lost a few times on foot was, you know, even if we just go ahead and dial it all up and say like, it was, you know, you were trying to find a restaurant, you were really hungry. They took you on several left turns. I think you would have had other options. You know, you could have said like, I'm going to look something up on my phone or like, I'm going to sit down. You know, you had other options. Yeah. Like you don't have to follow drunk people around. Um, really you had don't. other options and, and also like, I don't know, it's like oh, the wrong direction multiple times on foot at night. Like, oh, not night walking. That'll kill you if you're Daisy Miller. If that doesn't sound like a fun time to you, then why are you drinking? Uh, I don't know. Yeah. Or like, I get it. I, I've certainly been like, I don't know, out with friends and like someone else is getting lost and I've been exasperated. But like, then if someone's like, hey, don't be so short tempered, I, I, you have to acknowledge like, you're right. I was being kind of impatient. Like, let me get back into the spirit of like, whatever it is that we're doing, you know. You take a few deep breaths. You, uh, well, I, I shouldn't say calm down, but you take a few deep breaths and yeah. you try to speak with a kinder tone of voice. And if you feel like you really can't do that, then, you know, maybe you just take yourself home and put yourself to bed by yourself. Yeah, you weren't late for a job interview. And so regardless of how exasperated you did or didn't sound, your reaction to your friend saying like, hey, that's kind of mean was in fact totally mean, which was just like, how dare you imply that I was being mean-spirited? Now I'm going to stop talking to you and prove it. That's, yeah, that's pretty mean-spirited in my opinion. So this is just like, you're so attached to this like status of like, who owes you an apology that you say you don't even miss seeing your friend. And I, I just think that makes me feel really bad for this letter writer. Like, you know, part of me feels like, Maybe your friend's better off without you. Is this if mm-hmm. this is how you handle like low grade conflict? But I also like 
you know, that would make me sad if the letter writer just lost this friendship and was convinced like, this is the way I should treat people. This is how I want to handle conflict with my friends in the future. Like, I don't want to encourage the letter writer to go down a path that's going to make them like lonelier and more isolated either. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, And it's my suspicion. I, I don't know for sure, but if it gets to the point where your friend is telling you that you're being mean spirited and you need to stop, it's probably not the first time you've exhibited that behavior. Yeah. At least give it a little thought. Maybe it's possible. I mean, and there's also impact over intent, right? Like maybe you didn't intend to hurt anyone, but you did. And if you care about hurting people, you need to care about more than your intentions, but what you actually do with your words and actions. Yeah. And I think, you know, there's something in, I think often, especially when there's like a particular pattern or a habit that any one of us fall into around certain feelings, whether that be like anger or sadness, sometimes someone acknowledging it feels like a really threatening accusation. Kind of in the same way, like, you know how teenagers never want to admit that they're sleepy? Mm. Like at a family, you remember like family holidays or something, like you come downstairs, you're later than everyone else and everyone's like, oh, you were sleeping. And you're like, no, I wasn't. I've never been sleepy in my life. Fuck you. I don't know about teenagers, but I do live with a two-year-old. So I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. Sometimes like if you, t- if you say to someone or like if, if someone hears like, oh, are you sleepy? People are like, no, I'm not. Um, and sometimes if you're like seemingly angry and someone's like, you seem really mad. Often the reaction is, no, I'm not. A- and I think like being in the middle of a kind of like stormy emotional episode, oftentimes one of the ways you recognize you're in it is if someone accurately names the feeling you're having and you're like, no, I'm not. Fuck you. I won't talk to you. Mm-hmm. Um, and if that's your reaction to someone saying like, you seem a little hostile right now. And your reaction is like, I'm not going to talk to you for a week. They have accurately assessed you were in fact angry. You were in fact a little hostile. You were in fact being mean. They were right and you were wrong. Yes. So that to me, I think letter writer, I really, really hope that if you listen to this and you find yourself just getting more heated and angry, if you could just like pause and like let it go. Sometimes it feels really, really good to let down that defensively angry position and just say, I'm so sorry. I went off the rails. I was so indignant and angry and I wanted to prove you wrong and to prove myself right. And that was all I cared about until I couldn't even like, I mean, is is being right about this worth more to you than a week of spending time with a close friend? Really? Like, To me, that just suggests, I don't think the stakes here were so important that you were choosing the principle of the thing. Um, I I think you were just so unable to acknowledge that you were a little bit bitchy for three seconds that you ended up almost driving away this clearly very caring friend of yours Mm -hmm. who like, all she did was tell you to like calm down and don't be mean. It's not like she like called you a four letter word in the middle of the street and like walked away from you. And then since then, she gave you some time to calm down. Then when you didn't say anything, she reached out to see if you were ready to like come off your high horse. When you didn't do that, she went and apologized. She apologized. Right, for saying don't be mean. That's blowing my mind right now. Like this is like the most accommodating, considerate friend I've ever heard of, honestly. Yeah, and to me, it felt like probably she, she probably genuinely like felt bad that she had hurt you, but was also hoping like, okay, now... If I apologize, will that give you the flexibility to acknowledge what you did wrong as well? And you did not do that. Yeah, it sounds like the letter writer did not apologize to their friend and doesn't oh, feel like no, they need no. and to. And proud. Yeah, and, and then 
you know, when that didn't work, she's reached out again to just say, I miss you. Mm -hmm. Um, This person is like putting down goblet after goblet of love at your feet and you're just kicking them over um, and saying, I'm not thirsty. I'm not thirsty. I'm not thirsty. Fuck this. And I just think that's really, um, you know, there's not often times in life where someone brings us love again and again and we kick it away again and again. And then it, people eventually will stop bringing you little goblets of love. That's not the best analogy I've ever come up with, but like if you keep kicking this kind of stuff away from you, people will stop bringing it mm-hmm. and you will find fewer and fewer people who are willing to apologize this many times or accommodate you this much and say, I miss you. I miss our closeness. Eventually, people will not want to be close with you at all. And nobody will say, I miss our closeness because they will be saying, God, I'm glad I'm out of that situation mm-hmm. or what a waste. And I don't want that for you, letter writer. I think that would be a really sad outcome. So I really hope that you can climb down off of that horse, that high, high, high horse, and tell your friend that you are really, really sorry for the cold shoulder that you've been showing her in her attempts to reconnect. You know, maybe do a little more investigation about why this has been your reaction because it seems really out of whack. Yeah, yeah, I... I'm pretty perplexed by this reaction as well, to be honest. So I know we've already recommended therapy once this episode, but I think we could do it again. And this is even just like one of those like fix your hearts or die situations, like before we even get into therapy, which is like, what's the orientation of your heart right now, friend? And like, do you value the right things in in life and in relationships? And you know, I can't answer that question for you, but these are some serious soul-searching kinds of questions I think you should be asking yourself. Ash, would it make you feel better if I read you another folksy saying that some of my listeners have been writing in to share with me? Yes, please share that. Fantastic. So as you may know, this is coming from a few episodes back now where I talked about uh, expressions that I grew up with, like geminently. And I've been getting increasingly esoteric folksy sayings from from people as a result. I should have prepared one for you. You could take the time, you know, like think think if you've got any. I had another one that was like exclusive to the, like my family of origin that came from their old town of St. Francisville, but if something was crooked, they would describe it as leaning towards Reinhardt's because there was some <laughs> like uh, building owned by the Reinhardt family that was sort of like in the center of town or that something would have like moved in the direction towards. I don't know. I like it. I found it charming. I love that. I gather you're looking for homespun sayings from your listeners. This may not quite count as folksy, but it is a quirk of my family's that you might enjoy. My family call ambulances yam yams. We live in Ireland uh, and it is free to call an ambulance and travel in one, although a charge is levied for treatment in the ER. There's definitely a better safe than sorry approach here about calling an ambulance as a result. And when we, Irishly, apologize to the arriving EMTs for bothering them, they brush off the apologies and say, always call us. It's fine. As a result, it's not unusual to see or hear an ambulance pretty often. In my family, we cross ourselves when we see or hear one. Since, (laughs) a letter writer, I know that Ireland is historically majority Catholic. You don't have to explain that to me. I mean, thank you. That's very kind of you. But I feel like that's a pretty well-known fact about Ireland. A lot of people reflexively bless themselves when passing a church, but we also figure that the person in the ambulance also needs a quick perfunctory God check-in. Anyways, we bless ourselves, and if someone asks why, we say yam yam. I have no idea where this came from. It sounds like reappropriated baby talk, 
But if it is, I don't know who the original baby was. It's so ingrained that I forget that it's weird until, say, I'm in the car with my husband and I hear a siren and I say, hmm, I can't see the yam yam. And he looks at me like he's just realized the biggest mistake of his life is several years behind him. Also, this is less homespun, but you might enjoy this phrase of my mother's. After complaining for 40 straight minutes about some people who had annoyed her in some minor forgettable way, ooh, your mom might want to talk to our last letter writer. She turned and said, anyway, it doesn't matter. I'm Zen, so everyone else can fuck off. That is charming. I mean, you know, worrying, but charming. Thank you so much, letter writer. That is bananas. Um, Yam yam. I love it. Thank you. I'm not going to start calling ambulances yam yams, but uh, I will definitely think about it the next time I see one. I see that as a bumper sticker. I'm Zen, so everyone else can fuck off. You know, the letter writer actually said also, I feel like this belongs on a bumper sticker. Oh my I was kind of trying to edit it for time, <laughs> but yeah, you and the letter writer. It, it does absolutely feel like a kind of, um, you know, don't talk to me before I've had my coffee kind of wine mom expression. Like one of those t-shirts that's in a store that has the whole wall of graphic t-shirts. Yeah. Yeah. Like the ones that there was always some guy in high school who'd wear the one that was like, can't sleep. Clowns will get me. Mm -hmm. Um, Or like you laugh because I'm different. I laugh because you're all the same. Yes. Just like, yeah, I've seen that sentiment. Silk screened a lot. I think I am going to start calling ambulances yam yams because uh, my my kid can say fire truck, but she cannot say ambulance. So I think that's going to be added to our household vocabulary. Thank you for that. Absolutely. Ash, thank you so, so much for joining me today. Uh, and um, do you feel like you got to use any of your math skills? Um, let's see. I think earlier when you were talking about like the definition of a stepmom, um, mm-hmm. I, I don't know, that conversation felt a little bit mathematical to me because in math, we have like very strict, rigorous definitions and everyone agrees on them. Um, or if there's disagreement, it's extremely well-documented and will be discussed at nauseum before anything started. And that's really what I love about math. And that's why I went into it in the first place is because in mathematics, you can be absolutely certain that you're right. Um, you can also be wrong, but somebody will be able to tell you that you're wrong and give you proof that you're wrong and that you, you have to accept it. And when I was a teenager deciding what my college major would be, I found immense comfort in that certainty. And things like the definition of a stepmom or really any of the topics that we've talked about today where there's all these shades of gray and unknowns and different interpretations. um, Those are things that I really had to grow a lot as a person to get comfortable with at all. So um, I just really appreciate this opportunity to talk about definitions and interpretations and all of the sticky, messy stuff that makes us people because that's not what we do in mathematics. And it's good to do more than one thing. I'm thrilled that we got to have you with us today. And I hope we get to have you back on the show soon. Thank you so much for your excellent advice and have a fabulous rest of your afternoon. Thank you so much for having me, Danny. I really appreciate uh, the opportunity to be here. Thank you for joining us on Big Mood, Little Mood with me, Danny Lavery. Our producer is Phil Circus, who also composed our theme music. Don't miss an episode of the show. Head to slate.com slash mood to sign up to subscribe or hit the subscribe button on whatever platform you're using right now. Thanks. Also, if you can, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. We'd love to know what you think. 
If you want more Big Mood, Little Mood, you should join Slate Plus, Slate's membership program. Members get an extra episode of Big Mood, Little Mood every Friday, and you'll get to hear more advice and conversations with the guest. And as a Slate Plus member, you'll also be supporting the show. Go to slate.com forward slash mood plus to sign up. It's just $1 for your first month. If you'd like me to read your letter on the show, maybe you need a little advice, maybe some big advice, head to slate.com slash mood to find our Big Mood, Little Mood listener question form or find a link in the description on the platform you're using right now. Thanks for listening. And here's a preview of our Slate Plus episode coming this Friday. I think part of why I feel affection here is that is also an impulse that I deal with sometimes, which is especially like, oh, somebody I don't know is having a really difficult time. Time for me to make a new friend, um, <laughs> which is, is like, that? why do we do often this, <laughs> a lovely impulse? Sometimes it's genuinely rooted in like a real desire to help. And sometimes it can also be about I want to feel really important. I want to bowl somebody over with how helpful and like willing to be there I am. And I'd rather do that for somebody like new and shiny than just like check in with a buddy who I've known for a long time. I am not saying it always goes into like dark places, but if you find yourself doing that constantly, then sometimes it has to do with like a little bit of a savior complex. To listen to the rest of that conversation, join Slate Plus now at slate.com forward slash mood.